following is a joint production of Burgundy Blog and Sports Channel 8. up this is brent from burgundy blog this is an overdue post-draft burgundy blogcast where i get to explain why i think the redskins really kick some ass Today is Wednesday. I assure you I have been champing at the bit to spill my guts about this draft class, but I have been delayed to this point by some annoying scheduling conflicts and also by a nasty GI-related illness, but rest assured I am full going 100% for this guy right now. This is a solo session for two reasons. Number one, I had a hard time scheduling a guest from among my regular partners, and number two, because I have a lot to say and I just want to hog the mic. Also, this is my blog and my blogcast, so I can do whatever I want. And what I want right now is to spend some time on the couch, unburdening myself of my feelings. Please join me if you are so inclined. All right, the Redskins drafted eight players. I think they did a really good job. I'm going to spend at least a minute or two on all of them, actually, as well as some other draft philosophy and something I was working on last night that I'm calling the Reach Criteria, which is a draft tool designed to help you decide if you're going to look like a total dope for complaining that a particular pick is a Reach. Before I get into the picks and the draft itself, though, there's an important Redskins-related topic that is active right now that I think bears some touching on, and that is Bruce Allen, the team president who many of us hate and desperately want to be rid of, and how right now in the national media, I would say rumors are swirling, I think swirling is the word, that Bruce may be interested in leaving the Redskins to join the Raiders and reuniting with John Gruden, with whom he worked very closely in Tampa previously. I'm sure it's also not lost on you that John Gruden is Jay Gruden's brother. First of all, I think it should go without saying that we should all be rooting hard for this move. There are a few contrarians out there on Twitter, somehow I think actually trying to recruit support for Bruce Allen, primarily on the grounds that this 2018 draft looks pretty good right off the bat, and that his previous ones, in particular the 2014 draft, also looked not so bad. And due to some nonsense about maybe how overall in the big picture the team's trajectory could possibly be slightly trending upward over the last couple of years. I'm actually not going to dispute those points. But the facts remain that Bruce Allen has been with the Redskins for eight years. Their record over that period is far below 500. He is largely responsible for orchestrating or at least facilitating most of the key hires, including Mike Shanahan and Scott McLuhan over that period, both of which obviously went down in flames. The team's record over his tenure is terrible. They have only one 10-win season, only one playoff appearance, and no playoff wins. They have remained, for the most part, a laughingstock nationally. He badly botched the Scott McLuhan situation and the Kirk Cousins situation, and he's rather flaunted the embarrassing Redskins name situation. Bruce Allen was recently voted the least trusted GM or top executive in the league by a survey of agents, and in general, his personality is extremely off-putting because he is a smarmy, douchey, silver-tongued snake oil salesman who represents the team in a generally embarrassing way. I do not care if he is good at stadium deals, and I am not fully persuaded by his mainly responsible salary cap management. Bruce needs to go badly, and if he wants to go, or if Dan decides he finally wants him to go, we should all be rooting hard for that. Now, Bruce basically came out and, in short, denied it yesterday, saying, 
about the Raiders, quote, I'm not going there, and that he still has a job to do in D.C., and that supposedly he intends to continue doing it. Personally, though, I see far too much smoke here for there not to be at least a little bit of a fire. These reports of mutual interest between Bruce Allen and the Raiders have now been floated by Mike Florio, Mike Freeman, and Jason Lacanfora. And on top of that, we've really seen Bruce kind of slinking away from the public eye over the past few months, with Doug Williams really now taking over all public appearances and remarks. And we're learning that with the possible exception of some trade agreements, this draft was, I think, pretty much run by Doug Williams and Kyle Smith. So I'm aware that there's a feeling that Bruce Allen might sort of have to stick around until some final stadium agreement is uh, made. But I absolutely think that these tea leaves may be indicating some succession planning. And despite his denial, I think something could be up. And I think if he leaves, it would be the most amazing news since they hired Scott McLuhan. Which, by the way, turned out to be somewhat phony news because it turned out that Bruce Allen continued to pull the strings all along. I'll go another step and say that if we're so lucky as to see Bruce move on in this 2018 offseason, I'm not positive that a major outside hire would have to be made unless possibly on the pro personnel side. I do think that Doug Williams is strongly trusted by Dan Snyder and has a great deal of credibility in the local media and, of course, among fans for being a Super Bowl legend and also now having gotten very favorable feedback on his first draft. I think Kyle Smith has a really good handle on college scouting and many people, including Chris Cooley, think he's a future GM somewhere, if not here in the not-too-distant future. Of course, his father, AJ, was one with the Chargers and, and was a top executive briefly for the Redskins. And I also think that Eric Schaefer, who is primarily responsible for contract negotiation for the Redskins right now, is extraordinarily competent and could potentially be promoted yet again, if not to president, to another very high-ranking uh, post within the team. So they could potentially have a fairly smooth transition if Bruce leaves by really not rocking the boat too much at all and keeping some good in-house administrative talent. All right, time to talk about this draft class. I think the Redskins did a terrific job, and I thought so right away um, at the conclusion of day two. I continued to think so more through day three, and then over these last few days, I've had uh, an opportunity to read a lot more about all of these prospects and to watch some highlights and some clips on draft breakdown and to thoroughly scope out their combine performances and athletic profiles. And the more I've researched, the more satisfied I've been with what they did. And again, it's not entirely clear to me yet exactly what the chain of command is in the Redskins' war room right now. I think that uh, Doug Williams and Kyle Smith and Jay Gruden were likely the loudest and most important voices in these discussions. And I think regardless of whoever technically had final say, I think that the process seems to have worked. Now, I did a Burgundy blogcast with Colin um, the night of the first round, so after the Redskins had drafted Deron Payne, and we talked at length about our initial impressions there. So I'm not going to be super redundant about Payne here. I'll recap briefly that both of us were a little underwhelmed with the pick initially, primarily because we we would have preferred for the Redskins to draft the athletically freaky Derwin James or Tremaine Edmonds rather than Deron Payne. But I will say that in the subsequent days, even in trying to be truly objective, my disappointment about that pick softened considerably. And I recalled that all along, Payne was indeed one of my favorite prospects for the Redskins. And in fact, I preferred him slightly to Vita Vea. I love most about Payne that I think he has an extremely high floor, a higher one, in fact, than both James and Edmonds, based on what he did at the football factory that is Alabama, and based on him simply just not having a single glaring weakness as a prospect. He has, of course, been described by many, including Lance Zierlein of NFL.com, as the not only a premier run stuffer, but probably the best run stuffer in this year's class. And furthermore, he said in his post-draft interviews that, quote, I make a living stopping the run, so 
He's not a prima donna that's more interested in stats. He's signing up for this job that the Redskins need someone to do so badly. He's had no significant injuries. He has absolutely no character flags. He's been impeccably coached. He utterly dominated on the biggest possible stage in college football, the national championship game. He's scheme diverse and position versatile. He's absolutely strong as an ox and says he can easily bench 500 pounds. Deron Payne is just quite simply not going to fail. He's going to be an above-average player, barring unforeseen catastrophic injury. And he fortifies the Redskins at a position where they desperately needed it. Even now, you know, could I go back in time and change the pick, would I, to Derwin James? I probably would. I think James is just, frankly, unbelievable. And his ceiling is even higher than Payne's. But I think his floor is lower, and so is Tremaine Edmonds. Derwin James has been somewhat inconsistent in his tackling in college. He didn't always make as many big plays as were expected of him. He did have a serious injury in 2016 that he still may not be fully recovered from. And on Tremaine Edmonds, his instincts have been questioned um, significantly by a lot of evaluators. Of course, he's only 19, and that may have a lot to do with it. But even though his size and athletic abilities for the position are just unbelievable, there's definitely not a guarantee that he'll just put it all together and become an all-pro. No one will disagree that instincts are incredibly important at inside linebacker. So the Redskins may have sacrificed a little bit in ceiling, but they gained it back in floor in this first-round pick. And generally, philosophically, I think that's what you should do in the first round. Because loosely, I think it hurts your team more by busting in the first round than it helps your team by landing a future Hall of Famer. It's frankly more important that you hit, that you get a guy, that you get a player who's going to be with your team for a while and who's going to be good. Not just JAG, J-A-G, just a guy, but an above average to good to very good player. It's more important that you maximize your chances of finding that than that you maximize your chance of finding a Hall of Famer. And I think that's what the Redskins did. And I think when you put him next to John Allen and Ioannidis, Deron Payne is going to become a very fast fan favorite. And so while in a perfect world, maybe it would have been ideal to trade back like three or four slots and still get him and pick up another pick, that's a gamble, and it could have backfired. And they got their guy, and I'm okay with what they did. So let's move on now to the guys they got that I haven't had a chance to previously speak about. Darius freaking Geis. Man, this is a fascinating occurrence and situation and topic for discussion. Mind you, my enthusiasm right now is not out of some sense that he is a guaranteed lock all pro right away. I'm not saying that's true. I like it. I'll explain why I like it, the pick. But really, it's more just that I think it's an incredibly interesting situation the way that it unfolded. Especially for me personally as a fan, because I think I went into the draft a little bit lower on guys than most Redskins fans, at least on average. And I, I was kind of hoping, frankly, that they wouldn't get him. I was hoping that somebody would, somebody else would take the, would, would draft guys and sort of save the Redskins from themselves. Mainly because I just didn't think and still don't think now that he was worth the number 13 overall pick. And so I'm really glad they didn't go that direction then. I do not think that he's uh, automatically the sort of transcendent running back talent that should be considered quite that high. And clearly the rest of the lead agreed because basically everyone passed him over at least once before the Redskins were able to get him. In fact, we all know by now that not one, not two, but six running backs were drafted before guys in this draft. Anyway, the fascinating thing for me is that I went from being the guy who was a little bit lower on him and actually hoping that he would not become a Redskin to a guy who, having followed the events of the last few days, has become his biggest fan and Honestly, I'm thinking about buying the guy's jersey. I'm rooting so hard for Darius Geis after I've seen what transpired since Friday night because we all know that the reason he fell was because of these vague whispers about his character and his maturity and his personality and how it might not play in the pros and how he might be too distractible or not coachable or that there's just something defective about him as a person that's going to compromise his on-field performance. And so I have researched the hell out of Darius Geis starting the moment that he was selected and I can't find it. I cannot find it. Sure, I see some immaturity and some, some juvenile behavior in some of his social media streams. 
including his Twitch video game stream. But it really seems so benign to me. And the thing about this altercation he may have had with the Eagles before the draft seems wildly overblown. And he's got no track record in the LSU. And on 980 yesterday, I listened to one of his offensive coaches from LSU just go so hard to the rim for him, not only as a player, but as a person. And you heard Doug Williams explain how he knows the area that Darius Geis came from, like the back of his hand, because he's from there himself, and he understands the environment that produced Darius Geis. And I'm feeling really confident that the league just undervalued him based on these sort of vague, unspecified concerns. And so the fact that the Redskins were patient enough to wait to the second round before considering him, and then to gamble a little bit, but to be right, to have that gamble to trade back from 44 to 59 and have it pay pay off and have him still be there, I think was just a masterstroke. I did not think that Darius Geis was good enough to be drafted at number 13, but man, is he good enough to be drafted at number 59, and man, is he going to be a quantum upgrade for the running back position group. He's pretty much the total package as a runner purely uh, when you consider speed, power, agility, elusiveness, and the sort of attitude that I think can really energize a sort of work, workmanlike, ho-hum uh, Redskins offense in terms of personality over recent years. Other than Trent Williams, there really hasn't been an alpha-type badass on that offense that everyone else can feed off of. But you're going to see some runs out of Darius Geis that are going to drive the rest of these guys absolutely bonkers and I think make the Redskins offense really fun to watch. Maybe to tap the brakes just a little, you know, we have to see what he can do as a pass blocker. We have to see what he can do as a receiver. Both of those things are going to be important to him getting high-volume snaps and carries especially as a rookie. But we're talking about a guy here who's second only to the legendary Bo Jackson in terms of yards per carry in his SEC career. That is a ridiculous stat. He's just a really, really good carrier of the football. And I think pairing him with P. Ryan and with Chris Thompson gives the Redskins a little bit of everything from that position. Takes a little pressure off of Alex Smith. It was just the right freaking move. So kudos to the Redskins for picking guys the way they did. So with the pick they got for trading down before they picked guys, Almost like a free third-round pick, it felt like in some ways. They picked Jerron Christian, the tackle, out of Louisville. Initially, it may have seemed a little weird because many of us have never heard of him. (laughs) And because he plays tackle where the Redskins seem to be set. Christian was generally projected in the third or maybe fourth round, although some sites, for example, CBS projected him in the second round. So he seems like a good pick to me for several reasons. Number one, he plays an extremely important position, i.e. primary and most important protector of the quarterback. Number two, this is a position of sneaky need because even though Trent Williams and Morgan Moses are both very good and locked up, they have both been hurt frequently recently and you never know what's going to happen. And their backup, swing tackle Ty Inseki, who is good, is 33 years old and now on a one-year deal and will no longer be controlled by the Redskins after next year. So swing tackle was actually a need. And what did they do? They picked a guy who is a swing tackle. He literally played right and left tackle switched from right to left within games for Louisville last year, which is a really weird thing that they did habitually and nobody can really explain it, but he's played both. And the other reasons they picked him is because he's very tall, very long, very athletic. And those are the fundamental physical parts that you need to be, uh, you know, eventually probably hopefully a starting left tackle in the NFL. Now he's too light. He's not even 300 and he's not strong enough. And that's why he wasn't a first or second rounder. Also his technique is far from perfect and he had some bad beats. But he is a really nice piece of clay for one of the best offensive line coaches in the game. And he can and will get bigger and get stronger. And he shouldn't need to play right away anyway. I think because I'm so confident in the first two picks, Jerron Christian is really where this, this class might hinge for me. Because if he turns into eventually a starting caliber left tackle, and by the way, he's only 21 and the first two picks are only 20. So these top three guys are all very young. But if he turns into a starting caliber left tackle, 
That's how this class could really kick into a category where history remembers it very, very fondly. I think this is a pick more for 2019 than for 2018, and I'm totally okay with that because it projects really nicely to that time frame. So that's two days, and there at the end of those two days and those three picks, I think that's when everyone was starting to feel pretty good about, about what the Redskins were doing. They were humming. They were cooking. And then came day three and the fourth round, and a pick that caused a lot of consternation, and I want to talk about this one a lot because I think this is another very interesting pick. Troy Apke, the safety out of Penn State. I'll admit that at that time, I was only aware of him as being the really fast white guy from the combine. And of course, after he was picked, I did my frantic minute or two of Googling and joked on Twitter that my initial impression was that he seemed like Reed Dowdy with wheels. And then I took, of course, some deserved ribbing for possibly basing that conclusion more on one specific attribute than others. But most of us hadn't really heard much of Troy Apke before that. And so some people started complaining here that he was a reach. Reach, 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 a trigger word for draft fans. And so I could see that, indeed, initially, many pundits had Troy Apke projected in more like the fifth or some even in the sixth round. Mind you, some, including Mel Kuyper, had him pegged almost exactly where he actually went in terms of overall big board ranking. And I watched some clips and read some stories, and I gathered that, yes, sometimes he misses tackles, sometimes he takes bad angles. He doesn't have well-defined upper body musculature, and he really only had one year of reasonable production at Penn State. So I certainly get why not everyone was immediately doing cartwheels. But let me elaborate on why I think right off the bat the Redskins absolutely deserve the benefit of the doubt on this pick. The reason is what they did last year in the fourth round, the same round, mind you. They picked a guy in Monte Nicholson that most of us hadn't really heard much about, a guy that many analysts had projected in the fifth or sixth round, a guy with unquestioned speed and physical skills, but a guy whose tackling, toughness, and effort were questioned sometimes. So therefore, a guy from a reputable program who was clearly drafted more on physical traits and potential than on polish and productivity. And almost everybody decried that pick initially as the worst one in the Redskins draft class. But we all know what happened. He turned out to be arguably the best rookie on the team. Now, of course, he had some injuries, but when he was on the field, he was dynamic. He changed the defense. And many of the criticisms about Monte Nicholson that were popular in pre-draft profiles last year were completely debunked. His jersey doesn't stay clean. It gets dirty as hell. He's not soft. He's a missile. That stuff was bogus. And so I'm not trying to make the argument that, hey, sometimes people are wrong, so maybe people, you know, maybe people are wrong about Apke. I'm saying that just a year ago, the Redskins picked in the same round, a guy in the same position with similar assets and similar supposed deficiencies, and they handed him to the same coaching staff. And the guy immediately panned out like a boss, way exceeded expectations. So that alone, frankly, should just tell you to shut up about Troy Apke. Let's see what he can do. Because what's another thing about him? Another thing about this guy who only switched to defensive back when he got to college? This is going to sound like hyperbole, but it's not. Troy Apke tested at the Combine like a top five athlete among the safety position of all time. I want you to go to mockdraftable.com. It's one of my favorite draft resources. They make spider charts for every draft prospect, which show how the guy compares on a percentile basis to other guys at his position in the draft. Not just this year, but in recent years, I think going back five years or something like that. Or these percentiles might even be based on all of the prospects at the position in recent draft history. So in addition to running ridiculous blazing 4-3-4-40 at the Combine, which hardly any other safeties in the entire league right now can replicate, every single one of Troy Apke's running and jumping drills was higher than the 95th percentile. It is actually absurd. He's a better athlete than Derwin James. His explosion is like on level a billion So if the Monte Nicholson thing wasn't enough already to just get you off this reach crap, allow me to submit 
that the most freakishly athletic safety in recent memory is probably not an automatic reach on day three. Maybe we should give this guy a chance, you think? Just on raw physical skills alone, he's very likely to immediately pick up the slack left in the absence of Niles Paul and probably Fabian Moreau on special teams as a kick and punt gunner. And again, he's still relatively new to the position, so why don't we just see what this guy with the bionic legs can become, shall we? And right here while I'm on Troy Apke is when I want to get into this idea I'm kicking around, which many of you will mock, but I'm pretty into it right now. It's called the reach criteria. It's like an algorithm that can help you decide whether it's acceptable or idiotic to call a pick a reach, okay? Ready? Here are, some, here are the criteria. It's based on both qualifiers and disqualifiers. The qualifiers are that picks on day one and day two, in other words, picks in rounds one through three, need to have at least two specific traits or attributes that you can hang your hat on as being highly desirable. On days one and two, I'm not interested in one-trick ponies. For example, in Duran Payne, you've got a guy who clearly on film has proven he can dominate the run, and a guy who we know can bench press 500 pounds. Two boxes checked. In Darius Geis, maybe you'll argue that you've got a guy with insane production in the best conference in America and proven elite tackle-breaking ability. And then finally, in Jerron Christian, I would say you've got a tackle with outstanding length and undisputed top-level athleticism in being a former basketball player. So those guys meet my qualifiers. And then I, I'm going to say, I'm going to soften it a little as you get into to day three of the draft, so rounds four through seven. First of all, let's face it, people. The draft is really three rounds, maybe four rounds, and then it's a bunch of scatter bombs and darts. This, I believe, really is how teams look at it. And you can look at the trade value charts and see what happens in trades of these later round picks. You can clearly see that these 5th, 6th, and 7th round picks in particular are just not highly valued. So I'm going to say that on day 3, your inclusion criteria, or your qualifier, is that your, your, guy, your pick just really needs one obvious awesome trait to hang your hat on to be eligible for not being a reach. And so in Troy Apke's case, you could say, hmm, I don't know, maybe, oh, he has the explosion skills of Carl Lewis. So, okay, I think you get my point about the qualifiers. Now, Really, the reach criteria is based more on disqualifiers. By that, I mean that I think you and I, as like Joe Casual fan, should be able to reasonably consider a player a reach if he, if he has one of the following five potentially fatal flaws. Okay, five specific things. This, re- this, this applies to all players all rounds. If he has even one of these things, or God forbid, two of these things, then I think it's potentially fair game for you to call him a reach. Mind you, I'm not saying that anybody with one or two of these things is definitely a reach, but I'll allow it. Okay, you follow me? Here are the five things. Number one, far too short for his position. Ain't nothing you can do about that. Number two, far too slow for his position. Ain't nothing you can do about that. Number three, fully legitimate and potentially prohibitive character flaw. Parentheses, Darius Geis' supposed immaturity, as far as I can tell, does not meet this criteria. He's never actually been in trouble. He's never hurt anyone. I don't think he's ever broken any laws that we know of. He's not a partier, and he's not a dick. Okay, those are the potential fatal character flaws. Number four, a bad injury history that is likely to linger or recur. I'm not talking about breaks or bruises here. I'm talking about bad joint injuries, neck and back injuries, concussion histories. Okay, any player, no matter how good, if he's got an injury history like that, I think it's fair game for you to consider him a reach if you want. And number five is a little bit nebulous and maybe something of a catch-all, but not really. Bear with me on this. It's if, if the player has a standout eccentricity or idiosyncrasy 
on the field. Okay, in other words, something about the way he plays that's like especially wacky, even though he might be good, right? So I'm thinking that like for quarterbacks, for example, if he's got like a really weird... If a running back clearly is in the habit of holding the ball like, you know, casually like a loaf of bread and as a result is a habitual fumbler. If an inside linebacker just habitually refuses to take on blocks and instead always tries to run around them. If a cornerback, for example, just routinely makes business decisions and turns down collision opportunities. I hope this is making sense. What I'm not talking about here is like inconsistencies in a given skill or just like this player is not that good. I'm talking about an obvious standout thing that is just universally agreed to be unusual or unique about a player's style. I'm not talking about he takes bad angles, he needs to wrap up better, he needs to become a better route runner. I'm talking about anything that really just makes a player weird in some specific way. And, and then if you hate it, if you hate that windup or that flagrantly upright running style. So if you see what I'm driving at here with these five disqualifiers is that these, these things are not coachable or really improvable by time in the weight room, in the training room, in the film room, by personal dedication to your craft. These five disqualifiers, which could make somebody a reach, are negative attributes that the player is very unlikely to shake with hard work and development. Again, they are being too short, too slow, fatally flawed in terms of character, uh, lingering or recurring injury, or the fifth one is something wacky about their playing style. Okay, so <laughs> I know I've already lost half of you, but I'm, re I'm really enjoying this. Okay, so I've talked about simple qualifiers and then a manageable list of disqualifiers. And the last thing, because I know everybody's obsessed with projected range and I'm not going to be able to escape this completely. And this is where I actually bring in a little bit of math. If you take the round that the player was drafted in and then multiply that number by 10, I'm going to say that you cannot call a guy a reach if he is drafted within that many picks of the place in the draft where any reputable analyst or mock drafter has projected him. I mean, his absolute highest, okay? So, for example, with Troy Apke, he was taken in the fourth round. So I literally do not want to hear you bitching about him being a reach unless he was taken 40 picks earlier than the earliest you saw anyone project him. 40 picks is, is really only one full round on day three. In fact, not even, all right? So I really have no patience for your complaining about a supposed fourth round reach unless he was actually selected approximately 40 picks earlier than anyone said he might go. And guess what? I saw a ton of people saying that Troy Apke could go in the fifth. And as I mentioned, Kuiper and several others had him easily in the fourth. So just because your favorite mock drafter happened to think that he was a sixth or seventh round pick, please do not approach me with any sort of certainty that they, quote, could have had him in the sixth. Okay? You have absolutely no idea that the very next pick off the board or that the very next, next defensive back taken wasn't going to be Troy Apke by someone else. You have no idea. By the time the draft reaches the fourth round, it's a complete crapshoot if it isn't already from pick number one, round one. So again, to bring it all home, Troy Apke is not a reach in the fourth round. He has a qualifier because he has ridiculous athleticism. I mean, almost unparalleled. He's not too short. He's not too slow. He's not prohibitively injured. He has no character flags. And there's nothing quirky or weird about his playing style. He's just a guy who needs to be coached up in the exact same way that Monte Nicholson was last year. And furthermore, several people who know what they're doing thought he would go right around or only slightly after where he actually went, even if three quarters of those sorts of people thought he would go a little bit later. 
So just please get off me with Troy Apke being an egregious reach, all right? Okay, I'm done. I'm done with that. Reach criteria. Patent pending. All right, we're only halfway through the picks, and this is already going way too long, so I'm going to try and pick up the pace a little bit here. But I I like what the Redskins did in the fifth through seventh rounds, and even uh, a couple of the guys they picked up as undrafted free agents, so I want to touch on all of them briefly. Uh, In the fifth, I don't think I need to convince most of you that Tim Settle was a nice value pick. He's a guy that a lot of fans are familiar with because he went to Tech. He's a big body on the defensive line with really good quickness, which makes him a pretty unusual and unique creature with a highly valuable combination of traits there. Many analysts thought he would go in the third or maybe even the second round. So it does seem like good value, but more importantly for the Redskins, if he hits, if he can keep that motor running hot, and by the way, he'll have a lot of good examples on that defensive line in that room that he'll be playing next to in terms of guys that that can really be motivators and leaders and show him how to work, like, for example, John Allen or Ziggy Hood if he sticks around because the Redskins love what he brings in terms of intangibles. But if his attitude stays good, and then maybe even more importantly, if he can keep his weight and conditioning in check, settles kind of a home run swing there in the fifth round where, yeah, he could totally bust. But man, he could really, really pay off in a position that the Redskins, I'm speaking of nose tackle here, have really lacked for a long time. And we sort of thought when they drafted Payne in the first that, okay, at least in in base package on early downs, he'll sort of be the nose. But if Settle hits, maybe he could be the nose. Both can play all along the line. But Settle there in the fifth was was just really high upside pick at a position of need. And I think the point in the draft where a lot of people started thinking like, man, they're they're, they're putting something together here. Comp for Settle on NFL.com. By the way, and who knows, you know, these comps are only worth so much. Every player is unique and they rarely pan out to their, you know, highest upside potential. But Lance Zierlein used the comp of Vince Wilfork. And if you got Vince Wilfork in the fifth round, that's a crush crush. So fingers crossed for settle. These these last three draft prospects are all interesting as well. Sean Dion Hamilton went to Bama which now seems like a pipeline to the Redskins, and by the way, I'm fine with that. And over the last two years of his career, at varying points, was considered, for intervals, as important, or almost as important, as eventual very high NFL draft picks Reggie Ragland, Reuben Foster, and Rashawn Evans. Now, he does not have desired height or size because he's just shy of six feet. And he had an ACL injury over a year and a half ago, which should be completely healed by now. And he fractured his kneecap last year, which also should be completely healed soon. I'm not trying to suggest that the injuries shouldn't weigh into his evaluation at all, but I actually don't think they're that bad. And again, this is a guy who was as important to Nick Saban as three recent day one picks were. And if you Google some things said and written about Sean Dion Hamilton by Saban and others close to the Alabama program, they are effusive in their praise for his leadership and his intelligence. He was a high school valedictorian who flawlessly called plays for one of the best defenses in the country, and who was voted by his teammates as the most inspirational player on the team. You got that guy in the sixth round. That's a nice pick. Enough said. Down to two left. First one, corner, Virginia Tech, Greg Stroman. Now, I'm a UVA guy. I don't watch a ton of Tech, except every year when they play each other. And I did not know a ton about Stroman, but I've looked into him. And guess what? It turns out Greg Stroman is just a really freaking good player. I mean, I don't follow PFF for everything, especially college stuff, but PFF had him as something ridiculous, like the second best coverage corner in the country last year. QB passer rating when throwing in his direction was like in the 20s. He's also a ball hawk with lots of interceptions, and he returns those interceptions for big chunk yardage. He's scored a bunch of touchdowns. He's an awesome punt returner. I think he had four punt returns or total kick returns for touchdowns, and at least one on an INT return. Stroman apparently lasted this long because he's really skinny, and a lot of people question whether he'll ever have the size and the frame 
to hold up, and that's reasonable. So that's that's why he's a seventh rounder. But that doesn't even meet my reach criteria disqualifiers because you know give this kid a chance to see what he can become after another year in the weight room and 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 pro level conditioning and training. He looks like he could potentially in the future be a big contributor on defense and on special teams. You got him in the seventh round. Mike Vick came out on Twitter and, and referred to Stroman as, I, I forget the exact language, but something like one of the most competitive players. Of course, is a fellow Virginia Tech alum. One of the most competitive guys on the team or in the draft or something like that. And that's that was backed up by many other resources that he's just a super fiery, um, amped up competitor. So obviously, you can never have enough corners. Um you can really never have too many players from Bud Foster's defense. And Stroman really just checks a ton of boxes. So that was an awesome, awesome seventh-round pick. And then finally, a guy who's actually gotten a lot of pub for being the last pick in the draft, so-called Mr. Irrelevant, Trey Quinn, six-foot white wide receiver out of SMU, who initially he played his first couple of years at LSU. All Trey Quinn did last year was catch more footballs than anyone in the country in Division One. He's got decent size. He's supposedly not a burner, but I think I saw that he ran a 4.5 something at his pro day. Granted, pro day, not combine, but I wouldn't say he's slow. He was just outrageously productive in his one year after transferring out of a school where wide receivers just never top out because they focus so hard on the running game instead. One of my favorite follows on Twitter, Mark Bullock did a nice uh, Twitter moment and, and compiled clips of Trey Quinn and how he's just a badass route runner, both inside and outside. And then you've got this thing where Doug Williams recently said Jay Gruden started pounding the board for Trey Quinn way before they actually took him in the seventh, suggesting that he's already teacher's pet. So frankly, that just looks like a super high upside pick with number 256 overall. And I'm now through the entire draft, and I found really good reasons, multiple really good reasons to like every single pick that the Redskins made. I do not do this every year. I don't come on, I I don't do tweets and, and podcasts and blog posts every year saying how amazing the Redskins draft was. I was a little skeptical of the Josh Jackson and Sua Cravens picks in the McLuhan draft. I was pretty skeptical of Trent Murphy when Bruce Allen drafted him. I complained when uh, the Redskins took Brandon Sheriff instead of Leonard Williams, which, by the way, is somewhat analogous to the Redskins drafting Deron Payne over Derwin James. And and the Sheriff thing worked out just fine. Uh, Last year, I, I criticized the Redskins for taking Ryan Anderson in the second round because he had such a disaster of an athletic profile. And although I still have, you know, some hopes for Ryan Anderson, I have not exactly been proven wrong with that skepticism. But this 2018 Redskins draft, I just really like it. Every pick is well-reasoned and can be well-defensed. And obviously, listen, I know that the Redskins are not going to end up with eight long-term starters and contributors here. Some of these guys will not even make the team in August. One or two of these guys may never play a down for the Redskins. But I really think they made the most of what they had coming into this this draft, especially having traded away the third rounder along with uh, Kendall Fuller in the Alex Smith deal. It's just a nice, well-thought-out haul with a bunch of good matches of talent and need, whether it be short or more immediate-term need. I think now, because it's gone so long, I'm just going to focus only on one undrafted free agent that I want you guys to keep an eye out on. And, and I said I uh, have uh, identified myself previously as a, as a UVA alum and, and big fan, but a guy they signed, Quinn Blanding, is a safety, I guess, although they might make him into a little bit more of a money backer slash nickel linebacker. Quinn Blanding was a five-star recruit at UVA who is the all-time leading tackler at UVA, and he's just a tremendous tackler. He does not miss tackles. He's a little slow, and that's why he wasn't drafted. He ran a 4-6-something. So I totally get it. And that speed may be too 
it may be insurmountable. I'm not sure that he can ever have a pro career being a 4-6 safety, but he might be able to because he has tremendous instincts, impeccable intangibles, insane durability. I think he started every game all four years. I think he was three-time first-team all-ACC safety. And so if you want to think of him as like your foil to Troy Apke in the fourth, who's a guy with not a lot of production, but who on the other hand is blazing fast and who they drafted really on traits. You know, quite frankly, even with that 40 time, if they had drafted Quinn Blanding in the fourth round, I would not have complained one bit. I wanted the Redskins to draft Quinn Blanding, and I think he could totally have a pro career. He has a top pedigree. He's been highly respected and regarded since high school. He did not disappoint at UVA in any way. Again, he, he may have some coverage liability, so if he stays a safety, he'll be more of a box safety or a strong safety. If they want to do with him a little bit more of what they did with Sua Cravens or what they're doing with Josh Harvey Clemens, I could see that happening too. But the Redskins are not super long and deep at safety. And I would not write off Quinn Blanding, undrafted free agent, whatsoever. I think of him as a draft pick right now, sort of a bonus draft pick. Because many, many, many smart people were totally shocked that he didn't get drafted at all. All right, I think that's it. I think I hit all the individuals I really wanted to touch on, and this has been very cathartic for me. Thank you so much for indulging me in this super long podcast without any partner. You've just been listening to me drone on and on for all this time. Kudos to any of you who stuck it out, all seven of you that are still listening. I'm just always happy to talk about it when I honestly believe that the Redskins have done something right. And it feels like they did here, but hell yeah, I still want Bruce Allen gone. So fingers crossed. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed it, or if you've hated it, please leave me a review on iTunes so I can understand a little bit better what you guys like listening to. I do not promise to deliver it because this is my hobby that I do strictly for fun and for free, but I do promise to listen to whatever you say or write. Also, please, please engage me on Twitter, especially with disagreement. As long as it's not profane or obnoxious, I enjoy a healthy debate about any of these issues. I'm on Twitter at BurgundyBlog. And you can always find every episode of Burgundy Blogcast at burgundyblog.com, as well as on iTunes, Overcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Radio Public, pretty much everything, I think. So look for Burgundy Blogcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if I'm not on the platform you prefer, let me know and I'll try to make it happen. See ya.